Please open with me in your Bibles if you have one. Uh, if you don't, that's all right. To the book of Matthew, chapter 1. I trust your Christmas season is going well. I know for uh, some of us, we, you remember um, the time when you were a child, and you might have some traditions that develop that you've carried on. I don't know what it is in your family. Uh, it might be getting a Christmas tree. Our own, my family, we go and we select a Christmas ornament every year at a store, and we have something that represents that year. And, and uh, we try to get together and we watch uh, some of our favorite Christmas movies. You have that, don't you? Your favorite Christmas movie and, and the time that you get together with family. And, and that overshadows the stress of shopping on Saturday before Christmas, does it not? Uh, I did that yesterday, and I, I, I wouldn't even get out of the car. <laughs> I was just, honey, you go. And here, I, I love you. <laughs> I'll see you in heaven. You know, it's just that type of, of stress. And and, and frustration, and, and there's so many different things going on. I mean, kids are wanting the toys, and we get caught up in, in just almost getting through the season. It's almost like a marathon. It really is. All of the stress that we go through during the Christmas season, I mean, we have Christmas parties, we have uh, Christmas decorations we got to get up, uh, there's lights, uh, there's the tree, there's uh, the ornaments, there's the, the Christmas cards, there's, there's all the family members that we're going to see that we really don't want to see, and then uh, all of the food, and we put on the holiday pounds. Is that right? You know what I'm talking about? Everybody does. It's, the, it's that time of year. But it's, it's easy to go through all of this stuff and miss the reason for the season. I hate to use a cliche, but we do. We get so caught up in everything else that we forget the reason we have to celebrate and that's because of Jesus. God sending His Son. It's a great miracle, something that we have a tendency to just pass over and not think about. But we need to pause and reflect on the story. And we have the, the luxury of looking back and remembering the birth. We heard different passages recited today. And today we're going to read from the book of Matthew and also going back and forth between Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and then to Luke chapter 2. The other two Gospels actually don't mention the birth of Christ, uh, Mark and John, but the, the majority of the information we have are Matthew and Luke, and they highlight different things. We're going to see today and try to harmonize those two to get the details. And it's well known, the story's well known to most of us. I'd say almost to everyone in this room, at least we have a degree of familiarity with the story. And again, we're looking backwards. But have you ever wondered what it was like during that first Christmas? I mean, there wasn't the toys, there wasn't the presents, there wasn't the eggnog, there, there wasn't uh, all of the different ornaments. There was none of that. There was just a, a teenage girl and her betrothed husband away from their hometown in Bethlehem for uh, a census, and she going into labor. I can't imagine how stressful that would have been. can't imagine what was going through their thoughts and their minds. I mean, they both had received, like a, Mary had, had a, the angel appear to her, and, and Joseph had, uh, had appeared, in an uh, angel appeared to him in a dream, but Still, the, the story, the reality of the situation they were in is unfathomable to me. Did they really understand what was going on? See, the story of Jesus doesn't actually begin in the New Testament. 
It actually begins way back in the Old Testament. And many of us aren't familiar with the Old Testament any longer. We don't read it very often. We don't make it a part of our lives. But if we look at our Bibles, it makes up 77% of the Bible. And within the Old Testament is the story of Christ. There are clues, glimpses into who he was going to be. God's anointed one. God's Messiah. The term Messiah, it's what what it means. It means anointed one. And the term Christ, Christ was not Jesus' last name, by the way. For those that did not know, it's a title. It means anointed one. It is a transliteration of a Hebrew term, Messiah. It's the same thing. Christ, Messiah, same thing. Just different languages. Hebrew and Greek. And this, he was the, the one that was foretold. One that was prophesied about. And we find these clues throughout the Old Testament. And if you read, sometimes going through, you'll see just glimpses. It'll be a flash. And, and it was profound. And, and you can't imagine the degree of what was understood by them in that time. The story of Christ appears actually for the very first time in the garden, of all places, in the garden. As we talked about today, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, biting of the fruit. And as soon as they had bit the fruit and their eyes were open and they knew good and evil, then death came in and sorrow and pain and all of these things entered in. But even in the midst of the consequences of their action, God provided a Savior. One who would come. The seed of the woman would defeat, would crush the head of the serpent, which is, which is Satan. And Satan, though, would strike his heel. It is a picture there that as Jesus would defeat Satan, the serpent would strike his heel, meaning that he would die doing it. Even in the garden, the cross was foretold. How phenomenal is that? And by, that's by no means an isolated passage. This, these past several weeks, I've been writing in a, the devotional blog, Meditations in a Toolshed, going through and examining specific Old Testament prophecies. And I have to say, I'm overwhelmed. I feel like the Queen of Sheba after she saw Solomon's wealth. Wow! Not even half was told how cool this was. That's what I feel like. Because it's so amazing that God would foretell all of these specific details in advance about Jesus. And the people were given these clues so they knew what to see and what to look for when he showed up. And here, I'll just give you a little insight into some of the things that were foretold. Not only would he crush the head of Satan, but he would be the God who would dwell among men. Genesis chapter 9, verse 27. He would be a descendant of the patriarch Abraham. Remember Abraham, for those that aren't familiar? He's the founder of the three largest monotheistic religions in the world. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all cite Abraham as their founder. God gave Abraham a promise to bless the entire world through him. And that promise, we look through time and throughout the scriptures, was specified and clarified. It was directed toward Abraham's son Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's son Judah, and then Jesse, and then down and down, and then to King David. We learn that this coming Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. He would be a faithful priest, a ruler, and teacher. Throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, we're given glimpses, sneak peeks into his life and person. In 9th century B.C., he was prophesied to be a teacher. In the 8th century, he would be known as the second David, part of this raised house of King David. He's known as the breaker, the coming ruler. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah alone, we see that he would be called the branch of the Lord, and come forth from him would be 
salvation. He would be born of a virgin, would be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He would reign the world. He'd be universally triumphant, the foundation stone, and the great teacher. He would be a servant of the Most High. He would have a mission to the world. He would suffer, would atone for sins, would proclaim good news, and would conquer. In the 7th century, he would, we see that he would be our righteousness, a priestly king, and would fill all the promises made to David and Judah. In the 6th century B.C., we see that he's called the tender sprig, the rightful king, the good shepherd, the unifier of the nation, the son of man, and the anointed coming ruler. In the 5th century, we see that he would be the desire of the nations, God's signet ring, the great high priest, king priest over the nations, the entering king, the cornerstone, the tent peg, battle bow, and every ruler. These are terms that are, are lost largely on us, but in that time, they were very significant on what they were to look for. He would be a rejected shepherd, the pierced one, the smitten companion, the messenger of the covenant, and the son of righteousness. So many clues. And yet people largely overlooked him. I think of Judas. We know the story of Judas. He was one of the twelve, the one who betrayed Jesus. He walked and talked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus do so many miraculous things. He saw that him take bread and multiply it, fish and multiply it. He saw him walk on water. He saw him calm the waves and the sea. He saw him make the, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. And he even raised the dead, and yet Judas missed it. He missed it. Even John the Baptist, Jesus' close relative, almost missed it. There was a time when John, after he was languishing in prison, doubted and sent his disciples to Jesus going, Hey, are you the one who wants to come? My understanding of prophecy says that you're going to be a ruler. And if you're the ruler, why am I languishing in prison? Because of this pagan king. And Jesus sends his disciples back, tell him what... You see in here, the blind see, the lame walk. He doubted for a period. God restored and renewed his faith. He'd misunderstood some of the prophecy. But Judas missed it all together. Now, today, what I hope for us is I hope that we will not be like them. In that we'll not be like Judas and we won't miss it. But we might see the reason for this season and not get caught up in everything else and forget the reason we have to celebrate and that's because of Jesus. Last year I attended a parade in Naperville and I was uh, astonished as watching the parade and I saw a lot of neat stuff. You see kids marching in their marching band. You see floats with different politicians and you see the fire department and the rotary club and everybody's got their float and you got elves dressed up and and then you even had stormtroopers and Darth Vader in the parade. I'm still trying to figure out how that and Christmas go together, but we'll go with it. All right? So you have this parade going on, and then everybody's excited to see Santa. And I kept thinking to myself, wow, the one most important thing is missing. And that's the birth of the Savior. It's Jesus. It's like looking at football and, at the Super Bowl and saying, hey, we're, it's all about the halftime show. Or the 4th of July saying, it's, you know, the reason for this season is because of the fireworks. It's not the accoutrements, it's the heart. And we take out the heart. Jesus, we got nothing. We have nothing. So the question is, is how can we make sure that we find Jesus at Christmas? I was hearing a song yesterday, maybe you've heard it. It's called, Where's the Line to See Jesus? Have you seen that? Pretty powerful song. 
where a woman's at the mall and she sees everybody's the line to see Santa, but where's the line? To, little boy comes up and says, "Where's the line to see Jesus?" That's a much bigger and glorious line. And many of us have largely lost the mystery of the incarnation, God assuming flesh. What it means that He came to die for us. I can't wrap my brain, my brain around it. The longer I've been alive, the older that I get, I'm amazed. So what I'd like us to do today is to recall the Christmas story all over again and look and make sure that we don't miss the clues that we might find Christ this Christmas. For those that have walked with Christ, that are doubting, like John the Baptist, I hope that this message might encourage you. For those that have missed the clues and been like Judas, I hope God, God opens your eyes to see the truth of who He is, that we all might worship and celebrate His coming and His birth together. So turn with me, if you, if you have a Bible. If not, just listen in. Uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It's our, our custom here at uh, Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. So please uh, stand with me. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask you be in our time today that we might truly comprehend and understand who you are. May we not miss the clues found within your word, what it means to serve and follow you. Lord, may we rejoice together. May we not be like John the Baptist and doubt, or if we are doubting, Lord, I pray that you might encourage our faith just as you did him. And may we not be like Judas and miss the clues that have been set forth within your word. Lord, I pray that you might open wide our, each one of our hearts today to truly comprehend what it is that you have done in Christ this Advent season. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to review the Christmas story for a moment of God's Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. We obviously know that he was born to Joseph and Mary, a young Middle Eastern couple, betrothed to be married while they were in Bethlehem, after traveling there for a census, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Remember, there wasn't room for them in the end, so they were probably in a stable. It doesn't actually say stable within the text. Most of the time we, we see that within drawings or we see that within, within songs, but because it was a manger, that was a feeding trough. That's why we assume it's in the stable. So he's laid in a manger. He is soon visited by shepherds, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 8 through 20. Eight days later, though, he was circumcised. Now, see, most times we put the wise men and the shepherds there together, but that's not what occurred. 
We have to look at the text and see what it says and harmonize Luke and Matthew. So he was taken to the temple and circumcised, which was the Jewish custom and tradition. Luke chapter 1, verse 21. Forty days after that, he was presented at the temple. Luke 2, 21 through 38, where it was prophesied by Simeon that he would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, non-Jews, and for glory to your people Israel. Luke 2.32. From there, he returned to Bethlehem, where he moved into a house, only to be greeted by wise men from the east. Matthew 2.1-12. But before the wise men arrived in Bethlehem, they had stopped in Jerusalem, which is only about six miles away from Bethlehem, inquiring as to the birth of the child and his precise location. Now, alarmed at the wise men's inquiry and sensing a possible threat to his position, King Herod sought to ascertain the exact place and time of the recently born king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. So he could have him executed. He needed to eliminate any threat to his position. But being warmed in a dream, the wise men, after they had beheld the king, the Lord Jesus, they returned home by a different route. Joseph, also being warned in a dream, escaped to Egypt with Mary and Jesus. And thus, even before he was two years of age, Jesus became a political refugee in Egypt, 90 miles to the south. You know, I got to go to supposedly the place where they stayed when I was in Egypt. I was amazed at how many people would start to weep, just like they do with many different holy sites within the Middle East. What happens is is people just build a church right over the top of it. And usually it's, it's some archaic structure that is just very dark and dreary, and people were in there touching icons and weeping at this, this church of the, the nativity. And I said, I, I couldn't begin to understand it. And I said, it's not that big a deal that we're here. And somebody said, oh, this is where he was. I'm like, I communicate with Jesus every day. It's not about touching a thing that he touched. It's about him touching me and transforming my life in a different sense. So Jesus became a political refugee before the age of two. Herod, angered at being slighted by these wise men and unaware of Jesus' escape, ordered the execution of several little boys in Bethlehem. So many children died, even before he's old enough to determine the right from the wrong. A year or two later, upon the death of Herod, Joseph received another dream where an angel informed him it was safe for his family to return to Israel. They settled down in the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Nazareth was considered to be a backwards town. In John chapter 1, verse 46, uh, Nathaniel responds to when he finds out that Jesus was a Nazarene, he's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, we have different cities in the United States that I could say, can anything good come out of there? But I'm afraid I will insult you because you might be from there. Okay? But that's what it was considered. It was a despised backwater town. And by his being located there, Jesus would grow up to be a Nazarene, which was fulfilling a general theme of the Old Testament prophets, which considered him to be despised. Those who came from Nazareth were considered despised. Now, all of these aforementioned verses, or these, these uh, passages harmonized together, together help, up, help make up the details of the Christmas story. And even with all of our technology, computer savvy, and access to information, we can still miss the point of the story that God came near, that God came to us. So what we're endeavoring to do today is to answer some of the questions that Google can't answer. 
How can we find Christ this Christmas? So we have all the details. We can harmonize it all we want, but that doesn't, that doesn't help us find Him. So what I'd like to do today is examine two specific groups along with another, uh, some various other characters. But we're going to look at the wise men. We're going to look at the shepherds. We're also going to look at Herod and the innkeeper. And look at all of their responses to the gospel, before, to the Christmas story. But before we can do that, we need to lay out some groundwork. We must make sure that we're eliminating all the obstacles that get in our way, that hinder our search. That's the first point. If you have uh, notes within the, the bulletin, you can follow along with me. But we need to eliminate or be eliminating all of the obstacles that hinder our search. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we read about the magi, the magioi. Uh, as the Greek word says, or wise men that came to see Jesus. Now, the term used for the Magi referred to priests and experts in mysteries in Persia and Babylon. But by this time, it applied to a wide range of people whose practices included astrology, dream interpretation, study of sacred writings, the pursuit of wisdom, and magic. Now, the Magi come to Jerusalem and they say, We saw his star when it rose. Now, the the Magi would have likely been familiar with some of these Old Testament prophecies. Remember, Israel had been in Babylon for a period of time. And they'd heard undoubtedly about the prophecies involved within the Jewish race, the Israelites. And the one prophecy uh, was by Balaam that included, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. This was understood by Jews to point to a messianic deliverer. And the the movement of the star suggests that it's not a a natural phenomenon, a comet or a supernova or a conjunction of planets, but was supernatural. Perhaps a guiding angel that appeared as a star, or perhaps some specially created heavenly phenomenon that had the brightness of a star. And they came to worship him. Now, these men likely traveled with a large number of attendants. How many wise men were there? Three, well, right, but you'd be wrong. We get that because of the gifts that they brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we think that there are three. But the reality was is there were probably several more. They probably came in a vast caravan. Nowhere in Scripture does it mention three wise men. That comes to us through the carols and the songs. We must make sure that we let the Scripture influence our understanding of Christ and not the carols of the songs. It's important to make sure that we're steady to show ourselves approved to look to the Word of God and examine it. So these wise men, this group, came from Babylon, probably by the main trade route, which would meant that it was a journey of about 800 miles. Now, if they'd come from Babylon by the main trade route, taking 800 miles, averaging 20 miles per day, the trip would have taken about 40 days. Now, the first obstacle that I'd like us to see as we're examining the wise men is that... that uh, they got over the space problem. That's the first obstacle. And let me try to elaborate on that. See, these wise men came from a great distance to find the Messiah. The journey took several weeks. Why? So that they could worship Him. They wanted to know God's Messiah and were willing to do anything to get to Him. How much does that contrast with the innkeeper in Luke chapter 2, verse 7? Here, he encounters the parent, the, 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 I mean, Messiah is getting ready to be born. And he says, there's no room. You've come near, you have come, you know, come into this area, but there's just no room. I'm sorry, I can't help you. He couldn't even see what was in front of his face. Whereas these wise men saw something 800 miles away, crossing cultures, crossing the de- desert, 
on camels. I don't know if you've ever been around a camel. That's not fun. They smell and they spit. And to cross 800 miles on those things, just to see him, to worship him, is quite phenomenal. But like the innkeeper, many of us don't want Jesus. Many want the trappings of Jesus, but not what he calls them to. They want Jesus and something else. Or else they want Jesus to come along as he comes as some Tony Robbins self-help guru and make them feel better about themselves. That's who Jesus is to many people today. He's my cosmic buddy that's always there to pat me on the back. But that's not who he is. He's much more than that. Yes, he comes alongside as the, uh, to help us in our time of need, but he's a lot more than that. He is the incarnate God. That's phenomenal to me, the incarnation. To think about God, who is love, by definition, according to the book of 1 John, he's also justice, he's also perfection, he's infinite, he's immutable, meaning he doesn't change. He is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. He is uh, eternal in that he exists before time again. He himself created time and dwells outside of time. He created all the planets, the world without end. I, I, I enjoy so seeing the different satellites we have. As Pastor Andrew, he worked with that stuff. He's a lot smarter than I am. But those satellites that take pictures way out into space of different galaxies and and worlds, and I like that how the old song says that he has worlds without end. And we're trying to figure out how to pay our property taxes. But he has worlds without end. And he created all of these different things. And that God, the second person of the triune God, Christ, would step out of eternity into temporality and assume the flesh of his creation, knowing that it was all the things it was susceptible to is beyond my ability to comprehend and understand. How he could intentionally limit himself and then show up and, and, and live among the sinful people is beyond my ability to comprehend. How could God assume flesh? How could he who is perfect, how who, could he who knows everything limit himself in that regard? I mean, I was studying and reading last night in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Uh, he had grown in wisdom and in stature with God and man. How could God who knows everything grow? I don't know. It's another mystery of the incarnation. That God came near. What would make him do that? What would make God, in essence, humiliate himself like that? I, I can't begin to wrap my brain around it. I mean, we often think that we're deserving of God's blessing. The reality is we're not. We're deserving of something else. And that's God's wrath. It's another popular a topic that's not popular today, but it's so scriptural. To overlook that is to look the, overlook the gospel and, what, and totally water down what he came for. Some people want everything else that Jesus offers, but not everything that goes with us. But, but may I ask a question? What does go with it? Eternal life? Joy in his presence? Knowing that you're doing what God made you to do? Conviction? The desire to do what pleases Him. These are all things that go with knowing Him. But perhaps you may be thinking of, and I've heard people say, you know, I want Jesus but not the people of God. Yes, we are a mixed up bag of sinners. Making bold assertions one moment and then denying Him the next. We sin, we fail, we're frail creatures that are trying to follow Christ in the midst of a fallen world. But what's the alternative? 
I would rather be with the people of God who know their sin than live with those whose heart beats to trumpet all manner of sin. The problem is not with, our, with God's people, but our ideal of them. We forget they're sinners and hold the standard we have of Christ for them. But our zeal, though ideal, is misguided. For in granting the people of God such a high privilege while forgetting their sinful nature is to set ourselves up for utter failure. We are all sinners in need of the Savior, and all alike must look to Christ before we begin to look at one another. See, a second obstacle is found in our spiritual preoccupations. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Why? Because he was Roman appointed. He was Idumean. He wasn't a full Jew. So his rule uh, was shaky at best. He didn't have the proper lineage, the background. So him being in power, he, he had a very shaky hold on the kingship. So with Christ coming and hearing that he was the king of the Jews, it was a threat. We're going to get to that in a moment. But what I'd like to focus on is what happened next. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he brings in these scholars to ask where Jesus was to be born. Where is God's Messiah? And they quote from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. They say this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Shepherd my people Israel. See, the question is, is they knew where the Messiah was to be born, but yet they themselves didn't go. Why? What kept them from going to see Jesus? See, this is what blows me away. It was their own spiritual tradition or preoccupations. See, we see Jesus having run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees numerous times in His ministry. They were concerned with their own view of things, that they were blinded to the truth of who Christ is. You know, most legalists are that way. Rather than living for Christ, they have their own view of truth and how to live their life. See, these are individuals who condemn everyone and place their own arbitrary rules and preferences above or upon everyone else. But these very practices that we think keep us with Christ can keep us from Christ. Not to mention keeping others from Him as well. Remember, Christ saved his harshest critiques for the Pharisees and religious rulers of the day. And while we don't have the Pharisees today, we do have other Christians, some that say, we love the Word of God. We, are, we follow the Word of God. I don't do this. I don't do that. I get sick when Christians tell me about everything they don't do when I meet them. Hey, I don't do this. I don't do that. Well, good. May you get a Boy Scout badge. What do you do? May I ask that question? Are you known by what you don't do or what you do do? And then are you loving God? Are you caring enough to share Christ? I'm not saying that we shouldn't be holy because we know without holiness no one shall see the Lord. We are to seek to be holy. But we can't let our legalistic practices be our means of justification. Faith in Christ is our sole means of justification. We are justified by faith in what Christ has done. He has poured out His grace grace to us. We cannot earn our salvation no matter what we try to do. But many of us keep trying to dance to get God to play the music of grace. 
I tried to illustrate that in different ways. The Roman Catholic view of salvation, and, I, and I'm sorry if you come from that background, but the theology is what I have a problem with, not the people within it. It's the theology. Because, see, God sets his, he says this. It's, he plays the, imagine a ballroom dance, and he plays grace. That's the music. Faith responds, and grace and, and works follows. So the man initiates, and the woman follows. That is faith responding to grace, and works follows. See, Catholics have it backwards. Works leads, faith comes, and then God pours forth grace. We can't earn God's, we can't earn God's favor. To do that, to, to set these legalistic things around us, means that we have no understanding of grace. We don't understand what Jesus did. Many think, oh, Jesus did that, now I have to, I have to do the rest. I've got to earn my way now. No, He already did it. Believe and trust in it. And that belief is transformational. And we respond in obedience and truth, not to earn, but a means of love and obedience. See, these legalists, or these traditions got in the way of them seeing Jesus. We have to remove any of these spiritual preoccupations that are not found within the Word of God. Now, another obstacle that needs to be removed is this, selfish pursuits. This can be seen clearly in Herod, as I just mentioned. See, Herod, he did have a shaky hold on the throne. He was an Idumean, meaning he was half-Jewish. And he was a, kind of a puppet ruler appointed by Rome. The Jews hated Rome, despised Rome, and wanted to figure out how to get rid of them. Now, I think back, and I know this doesn't play uh, all the way out, but looking at, uh, at uh, Ireland, I don't know if you've ever been to Ireland, but you have Northern Ireland and you have Ireland, and you have the, the English occupation of Ireland until that uh, Ireland was emancipated and only to one section of it. Now, I was in... Uh, Northern Ireland in 2003 during what was called William of Orange Day when it is the celebration of the English of William Orange's victory and conquering of Ireland. Now remember, they, own, they have Northern Ireland. Now Northern Ireland has about a million and a half people and most of them are for the Republic of Ireland. The rest of them are for Northern Ireland. Now what I saw that day was quite astonishing. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there was a parade and this parade had a lot of older men carrying these big giant banners, and they were marching with guns and tanks. This is the modern era. And it was dead silent as they walked through the city, because you could see the people of the Republic that were for the Republic of Ireland just grimaced. There was hate in their eyes. Now, why? What was the problem? It was as if they had been conquered, and they were, and then their, their conquerors reminded them every year that they conquered them. That's what it was doing. It's like the British not, being, not losing the Revolutionary War, but winning and then reminding us every year that they won. And just walking through the streets saying, we kicked your butt. That's what it is. It's a continual reminder of their loss. And they hated it, and it would revolt them. And that's what the Jews were like. The Romans were there. And it constantly grated them to have this pagan, half-breed king over them. And he was nuts. He had had his sons killed. He had had his, one of his wives killed. You didn't tick uh, Herod off. So he hears and senses a threat. He hears, king of the Jews, it's a threat. So he, in a little clandestine meeting, gets the religious leaders, the scholars, and says, okay, where is he supposed to be born? 
He says, all right. And he talks to the wise men. Hey, once you find him, come back and tell me I want to worship him too. He feigns this piety. And then the wise men, though, I mean, God won't allow them to be part of this, this masquerade. So he warns them in a dream, and they leave by a different route. And then Herod discovers that, hey, I've been duped. He doesn't know that Jesus had left yet, so he says, eliminate all comers. Any male under the age of two, kill them. I mean, that's quite phenomenal. He had his own selfish pursuits in mind. Now, many of us have our own selfish pursuits. What's keeping you from seeing Jesus in your life? What's the selfish pursuit that you're holding on to? Is it a sin? Or is it maybe something that in our culture is much, less, much more honorable or, or noteworthy? Maybe you have elevated your career or your success or maybe relationships. It could be you're looking for a spouse or it could be your marriage. It could be your children. You have elevated it so much that you have lost Jesus. Now you think, well, I'm, I, it's okay. Uh, you know, I'll just go through this period of my life right now like this. No. That is to demean what Christ has done and to not understand the full noteworthy of it. You are placing something over Christ. And God says, no. Your selfish pursuits are keeping you from seeing Jesus. We have to get rid of those obstacles. We have to get rid of our spiritual preoccupations. We have to get rid of these uh, selfish pursuits in order to see Jesus. You know, many people today, even today, or not even just today, but even in scriptural times, there was even more examples than what I'm giving you now. I think of the book of Acts chapter uh, 19. There was a riot in the town of Ephesus because people were turning to Jesus and the uh, idolatry, or the guys who made the idols, people were leaving that Roman cult in order to embrace Jesus, which means that they would be out of a job. Because they, they would, no one's going to buy their idols. So they're looking at their own economic interests and willing to get rid of their own, any conviction, just to, in order to get money. That they're willing to hijack a group of individuals because of their own selfish interests. Acts chapter 16 is another example. When a slave girl who had a spirit of div, uh, divination because of a demon in her, she was freed from this demon and saved by Christ. And all of her owners were making money off of her, cried out because it was unjust in their mind. See, they didn't care about the fact that she'd been freed and she was saved. They didn't care. They weren't making any money. See, how many of us have let our own selfish interests keep us from seeing Christ? The Christ of Christmas. What is it? Is it what worries are, are just bringing down your soul? And I know many of us, during the holiday times, there's, I mean, statistics don't lie. Depression increases during the holiday season. Whether it's spending too much on presents, whether it's being around relatives that we hadn't seen for quite some time that really get to us and know how to push our buttons, or whether, whether it's we just feel lonely and lost. We must make sure that we go and see Jesus. We need to be examining the open doors He gives. After we remove the obstacles, we have to look for the open doors that He gives. Now, what are these open doors that God has given for us? 
See, these open doors, and I want us to see it, involve all levels of society. What I mean by that is this. God has opened a door and made it available to us that we can be partakers or recipients of His salvation. Did you know that there were times that Jesus refused to work or heal or, or do a miracle on someone's behalf? One time He does it for a woman who's begging Him for her daughter. And He says, I, only came to, I was only sent to the lost house of Israel. And she pleads, and, she, and he talks about how, you know, that, you know, I'm not going to even give you crumbs, I'm paraphrasing it, from the table. And she goes, but even the dog eats of the, eats of the crumbs. And he says, woman, you have great faith. And he healed her daughter because he pleaded. But his mission was to the lost house of Israel initially. And then he expanded that to include us, the Gentiles. According to the Romans chapter 9 through 11, we have been grafted in to God's economy of salvation. That God's promised plan, though started in the garden, and he had Gentiles in mind, in it, weren't included within that promise initially. At least it seemed to us. After once Abraham came along, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. But his plan really the entire time, let me clarify, was for us. We were grafted in through Christ. He would be the, the means by which we were included. And you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are, what your educational background is, or what you've done. God has made this salvation available or opened this door to all levels of society. The wise men were the educated elite of their day. Whereas the shepherds were considered the common working blue-collar type. See, what he is setting up is for us to see is that it doesn't matter what your background is. That God is able to show Himself to you and save you despite where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor female, nor slave nor free. For all are one in Christ Jesus. He's brought all the nations in. That's why I love the book of Revelation. When it has all the nations gathered together before the throne. All different backgrounds. That's why I love about our church is when we, when we have different people of different races, I celebrate because I learn more about the glory of God. No offense, but I get bored of just vanilla. I like 31 flavors. I lived in the city, and I love 31 flavors. And each one, each group brings out something different in my understanding of who Christ is. And I am so thankful for that. And God has provided that for everyone. All levels of society. The wise men, the educated elite, bringing the gold and frankincense and myrrh and this I mean, this was some really good stuff they brought. Frankincense is resin used ceremonially uh, for, the only, for only incense is permitted on the altar, according to the book of Exodus chapter 30. And myrrh is sap used in incense and perfume as a stimulant tonic. And not to mention gold. I mean, that's obvious. And these gifts were likely used providentially to support the family, Jesus and Joseph and Mary, as they went into Egypt. I mean, but these were wealthy, affluent gifts that showed the degree that these guys were coming from a faraway land, were, uh, you know, a great caravan probably, and bringing these expensive gifts, showing that they had money, they had influence, they had education, they had background. God is for the people that are far away, and even those who are brought near. Because the, remember, the shepherds weren't from even far away, they were in the region nearby. So God reaches those that are far away and those that are near. Those that are of different ethnic backgrounds and those that are the same background. He's provided for everyone. So we must also see the signs that pointed their way. Not only do we need to remove these obstacles, we need to step into the open door to find Christ. We have to look for the signs that point the way to Him. 
Remember, the wise men saw the star in the east. The shepherds were told that they would find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. But both groups followed the signs that pointed to Christ, and by doing so, both groups found Him. Are we finding the signs within His Word? See, God has provided the signs through His Word, and sometimes He even sovereignly arranges circumstances in life in order to get our attention. And we must make the most of them. We must take advantage of these opportunities when God's getting our attention and respond rightly. And we have to make the, have the right response. We must have the right respond in the right spirit. It's another point. Under number two in your notes, for signs that pointed the way, we must have the right spirit. We must come humbly and honestly. Last week, I said that in order to receive, get the gift under the tree, we all must kneel. Every single one of us. I think of how the great uh, caravan of these wise men coming before Jesus. What did they do in the presence of this teenage girl and her betrothed husband? Or married husband by that time when they showed up, I'm sure. But they kneeled. They bowed and worshipped. I think of even the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus would have been like a Michigan Avenue, Magnificent Mile, uh, you know, Wall Street kind of guy. And in the midst of a parade, what does he do? He climbs a tree. How humiliating. Can you imagine some guy in his really nice Armani suit working downtown on Michigan Avenue, and he sees a parade coming by, and he can't see because he's a short guy, that he climbs a light pole. It's a similar picture of what Zacchaeus was doing. And you see, these people would humble themselves. We all must humble ourselves, becoming as little children, to receive God's wondrous gift of salvation, coming in the right spirit, and then we must step out in faith. See, the, the shepherds and the wise men came in the right spirit, and they stepped out in faith. To cross the desert was a step of faith. To leave your sheep to go see Jesus was a step of faith. We must all step out in faith, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is one of the essential ingredients that makes one a Christian. And it's simple faith in Christ. It is belief and trust married together. Now lastly, finding Christ this Christmas means this embracing the opportunities to worship Him. Embracing the opportunities to worship Him. To proclaim the story of Christmas. One of my favorite and dear stories, which I shared this last year, uh, is the Charlie Brown Christmas. You know, that story is a great story. My favorite part, though, is when Linus shares the true meaning of Christmas and reads from the book of Luke chapter 1. It's fascinating to think that. They would do that on television. Can you imagine someone doing that today? Even back then it was unfathomable. Can you imagine someone doing that today? The controversy that would ensue. The bloggers would revolt. It would be on CNN. It would be on MSNBC. It would be on all the websites. How people are, you know, how forceful is this? How people are cramming this down our throats. It would be all over the place. But here, even in the voice of this little boy, Reciting the true meaning of Christmas, that it's about Jesus proclaiming the story of Christmas. Are you proclaiming the story? Are you caught up in the hustle and bustle of the season that you haven't taken time to reflect and tell others? What about when you get together with your family this, this week? I'm sure many of you are going to be getting together with family, and, this, and, and, and I know you're nervous. You don't know what to say. Maybe there's some sin that's involved in the family, and it's like an elephant in the room. I don't know if you have that in your family. I do. 
And instead of talking about what really matters, and every time I go and see my family, my heart is burdened beyond belief. And I try, and I try to talk, and I try to share, and I, I don't know what to say. And I pray that God would give me opportunity, that they would truly come to know who Jesus is. I want them to know. And people are ready and ripe to hear. But oftentimes, we, we give in, and we rather than cause conflict in the family, we avoid everything, and we just repeat conversation from 1992. Play. And we talk about all frivolous amount of things that we've talked about a hundred million times with the family. Ask God for opportunity to share Christ this Christmas with your family and friends, with your co-workers. Proclaim the story of Christmas. Embrace that opportunity that He's given us. And ponder all the wonder surrounding this season. Ponder all the wonder surrounding this season that God came near. That God came near. I think of the book Max Lucado, in a book he wrote, God Came Near, and he has, and I've mentioned this before, but 25 Questions for Mary. It's one of my favorite chapters of the entire book. He has a remarkable gift of being able to bring out truth in a very amazing way. And one aspect of it he says is to Mary, did you ever have, did you ever try to count the stars with him and succeed? Did you ever tell him how he created the earth? Did you ever catch him pensively holding a clod of dirt in one hand while looking at his flesh with the other? What look did he get when he was in synagogue and the other kids were laughing and not paying attention? What did he feel when he saw a woman selling the body that he had made for profit? Did he understand who he was and what he was there for? Did you ever think to yourself, and he ends the, <laughs> ends the chapter with this, did you ever think to yourself, this is to Mary, wow, that's God eating my soup. God came near, pondering the wonder surrounding the season. And then lastly, praise him as the one who saves sinners. That he would humble himself, as the book of Philippians says, that he emptied himself not accounting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. And death on the cross was beyond our ability to fathom. And we stand and wonder, and we think, why did you do that? And we understand that he did it because God loved us. For God sent his son. For God loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's available to all of us. No matter what your background is, no matter where you come from, no matter if you've been in church for decades, no matter if you've been a deacon, I don't care who you are. Every one of us must bow, and every one of us must receive that gift of salvation that God has provided for us by Jesus on the cross. We all must kneel to receive that gift. Believe in Him. The the Scriptures are very clear that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved simple as that. And God will transform and forgive your sin. No matter how bad it is, no matter what you've done, God can forgive the worst of sinners because of the greatness of what He has done on the cross. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And God has given His grace and shed, enabled that to be shed for us, or enabled for us to, that we might receive it, that we might walk in the salvation that He has provided. Let's pray.